So tonight I'm going to talk about hope. I'm going to talk about hope because it's the season of Advent in the Catholic Church. Advent, of course, is the, the four Sundays before Christmas. It's a time of preparation. And the interesting thing is that in the, in the Christian tradition, hope is considered a virtue. You know, in other words, if you, you think about any virtue, you know, patience or discipline, it, it's something we work on. It's something that, you know, if I'm not good at it, I hope to get better, this sort of thing, you know. And, and much in the same way, the Christian idea about hope is that hope is something I should be working on, something it should be something I am cultivating, which I think is very different from the modern attitude of, you know, hope is more a mood. It's more like it's just, you know, if good things happen, then I'm hopeful, you know, this, this kind of thing. Um, a very different attitude. I'll also say that I think we live in a time now when there is widespread hopelessness among adults. And I think it it's notable and different from most of the adults who have ever walked the face of the earth. I think there's more hopelessness now than there have been in many other points in history, which is ironic because we have, we're comparatively safer and disease-free and all that compared to many other adults in history. So of course we live in a very head-centered verbal culture and and in this culture, I think hope is often understood as things to hope for. In other words, conscious, positive expectations. And this, of course, plays into the whole problem that Buddhism talks about with expectations. Expectations are problematic for a number of reasons. Um, you know, as far as Buddhism is concerned, one reason expectations are problematic is reality stubbornly refuses to match our expectations. So that we're, you know, if I get emotionally attached to an expectation, I'm inevitably disappointed when it doesn't work out that way. But more importantly, expectations take us away from the present moment. And I think it's something not really well appreciated. Our body is in the present moment. Our vitality is in the present moment. When I'm sending emotional energy to the future in the form of positive expectations, or if I'm worrying about the future, either way, then I'm sending emotional energy away from the present moment, away from my body. I'm, I'm as it were, frittering away my energy and depleting myself. And I, I think people aren't, you know, it's a subtle energetic dynamic, but I, but if, if I'm doing it all day, hoping for the future or, or worrying about the future all day, that's going to be a significant amount of energy that leaves me, you know. So really, from the point of view of Buddhism, and really Christianity also, hope without expectation is is really the hope that we should be cultivating. Now, relatedly, 
one problem with with expectations is that the future is simply unknown. You know, and we there's predictable things that we, we kind of rely on. But if I think if you, you look at, say, at the end of a day, look back on any day, even within your predictable schedule, there were a number of things that you never could have predicted. You know, the 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 future is unknown in so many ways. Um and Jung talked about this. Jung talked about the problem of facing the unknown. And he pointed out when we face the unknown, we fill it in with our unconscious. We fill it in with whatever narratives we have cooking inside of us. You know. And I actually think it is it's an excellent um an excellent path of of spiritual growth to just notice say the past four or five times when you had expectations and you had some good story going about how something was going to be, you know, is there a pattern in those stories? You know, do you see a pattern in the way that you construct stories about the unknown? And if you do see a pattern, that's pure gold. That That's telling you something about your unconscious, you know. So, hope without expectations. How do we cultivate hope without expectations? And another way to say that is that hope fundamentally is an emotion. It's not something cognitive. You know, so how do I cultivate the emotion without having cognitive stuff that it's necessarily attached to? And certainly one step, one very easy step, is to cultivate, comp- cultivate gratitude. Um, I talked about gratitude a couple of weeks ago. Um, but if you think about it, what I called in that talk, level two of gratitude, cultivating gratefulness for all the ordinary wonderful things in everyday life, you know, all the, all the things that benefit us all around us, um, and really, as we cultivate gratitude, what we're doing is we're building, we're, we're building our capacity to see wonder. We're building our capacity to appreciate the miracles all around us, you know. And if I just practice gratitude and I'm aware of the miracles around us, I mean, if I'm walking around in a world full of miracles, that in and of itself produces hope, you know. So that there's something very hopeful just about cultivating gratitude. That's kind of a simple thing. A big part of gratitude has to do with agency and responsibility. You know, and I think the way I would say it is, I think a lot of people who are stuck in a hopeless kind of narrative, it's often a victim narrative. It's often, you know, I'm stuck here. I can't do anything about it, you know. And there's this kind of helplessness that plays into hopelessness. Um, The truth is that we all have more choices than we realize. We all have more capacity than we realize. We all have more resilience than we realize. Um, So there's a tremendous amount that we can do. 
Um, there's one quote on the quote sheet from Barack Obama, and it's something along the lines of you're, you're feeling hopeless, go out and volunteer and do something. You know, you start helping other people, you know, you're going to be adding hope to the world and you're going to feel better about yourself, you know, like this kind of thing. Get active, you know. But a deeper part of that has to do with not only claiming one's power, but something called emotional sovereignty. And I've talked about emotional sovereignty on other occasions. Emotional sovereignty is the idea that I am 100% responsible for everything I feel. I am 100% responsible for my emotional states. And it's a very subtle thing about responsibility, and it's a hard thing to appreciate. I am not responsible for what anyone else says or does. I'm certainly not personally responsible for any larger social, political, global happenings, you know. I'm not responsible for any of those things outside of me. But I am responsible for how I interpret them, for what I make them mean to me, and for how deeply they impact me. I'm responsible for all of that, you know. And that's, I, I think that distinction is sometimes lost on people that, you know, well, I'm not responsible for the other person, you know, and then, then I'm a victim of the other person, you know, this kind of thing. Um, part of sovereignty, of course, is cultivating good boundaries and having good boundaries. We're, we're responsible for our boundaries and we're responsible for improving our boundaries, you know, this sort of thing. Um, But if you think about it, once we cultivate a mindset of, I can do something about this, I can do something about this, is a much more hopeful stance than, I'm stuck and I can't do anything about it, you know? So there's actually something very hopeful about embracing our power, stepping more into agency. Now, related to this, related to emotional sovereignty and stepping into our power, is the issue of capacity. And I've talked about capacity on other occasions. Um, I think it was about 10 years ago that a friend said to me, the most important question in life is how big is your capacity? And it really, I've been reflecting on that over the past decade and really have been blown away about how deep that insight is. Um, just to review, our emotional capacity is how big an emotional experience can I hold? You know, if I encounter something that is within my emotional capacity, so, you know, a conversation, an event, anything like that, then I can remain connected to myself. Then I remain connected to my heart. Ego is in charge. You know, if I'm trying to live my life according to certain ideals, I'm free to try to live out those ideals in that situation. You know, all that is is on the table when I meet something that is within my capacity. When I meet something that is beyond my capacity, then I'm overwhelmed. Then, then ego is essentially compromised. A lot of earlier, you know, earlier... Di- defenses, you know, infantile patterns, etc. start to kick in. 
I start saying things I didn't mean to say, doing things I don't mean to do, you know, like all of that. Um, and, you know, any any attempt to live my life according to certain ideals is completely out the window when my capacity is overwhelmed, you know. And so capacity is so important because the larger my capacity is, the more I can live my life the way I want to live it, the more I can live consciously or in touch with my heart. Um, And of course, we grow our capacity by leaning into our edge every day, by confronting challenges, by confronting what is uncomfortable, ultimately by the process of confronting our own deepest pain, we enormously expand our capacity. And I think I'll say that, among other things, one thing I find in the modern age that, that's certainly related to the question of capacity is I would call a crisis around intimacy. And the way I would say it is, I think there are a lot of people in the world who have deep defenses around feeling their own deepest pain. Who haven't, you know, for whatever reason, haven't done the spiritual work. And, and they just, there's no way I want to go there. There's no way I want to feel that. But it's the nature of intimacy that it really, by entering into intimacy with someone, I'm going to feel all of myself. I'm going to be confronted with all of myself, you know. And so I think there's, I've heard countless stories of two people getting together. It sounds like love. They're really great. You know, everything's wonderful. And then one of them gets overwhelmed for some reason. And, you know, you're great, but I can't stay here anymore kind of thing. Um, When we do not confront our deepest fear, it... It, it extracts a cost in our life. And in particular, it extracts a cost with the people that are closest to us, you know. And so it interferes with intimacy. And, if, you know, this is not the cheeriest topic, but of course the, the hopeful message is there is something we can do about it. We can all be disciplined about doing the work to face our deepest fears. You know, I mean, not an easy thing to do, but but we have agency to do that, you know. And the truth is, we also have, um, we, whether we, we believe it or not, we all have the capacity to do that. It's, it's, it's the very much the compensatory nature of the psyche, that anything that is in the psyche, ego has enough strength to confront it, you know. Ego, you know, may not be fun, ego may not like it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But ego has has the wherewithal to confront anything in the psyche. So at this point, I'm going to share a poem that is very much about... Oh. Oh. Something, something just went wild. All right. Can people hear me now? Okay. All right. So I'm going to share a poem. It's on the quote sheet, so I'll share the quote sheet at this point. 
a remarkable poem about stepping into agency. This is a poem I've shared before by Rumi. In the moment that you are drunk on yourself, you are the prey of a mosquito. In the moment you leap free of yourself, you go elephant hunting. In the moment you are drunk on yourself, you lock yourself away in cloud after cloud of grief. In the moment you leap free of yourself, the moon catches you and hugs you in its arms. In the moment you are drunk on yourself, the friend abandons you. The friend is God. In the moment you leap free of yourself, the wine of the friend in all its brilliance and dazzle is held out to you. In the moment you are drunk on yourself, you are withered, withered like autumn leaves. In the moment that you leap free of yourself, winter appears to you in the dazzling robes of spring. All disquiet springs from the search for quiet. Look for disquiet, you will come suddenly on a field of quiet. All illness springs from scavenging for delicacies. Renounce delicacies and poison itself will seem delicious to you. All disappointments spring from your hunting for satisfaction. If you could only stop, all joys would be rolled like pearls to your feet. So there's so much that's wonderful about that. It just, how can I say? And I... I love that first one. In the moment you're drunk on yourself, you're the prey of a mosquito. I think we've all had the experience of being in that place of self-pity. And the tiniest little thing is enough to like completely frustrate us and overwhelm us. Like I, I have to deal with this, this thing and it's the tiniest little thing. And then maybe the next day when I'm not drunk on myself so much, I can do things a hundred times more challenging than that, you know. But it's just, you know, sometimes in self-pity, the tiniest little thing is overwhelming. Um, but there's so much I like about it because it, it just is pointing out how much our hopefulness and how much our joy depends on our orientation, depends on our attitude. Am I drunk on myself or am I leaping free of myself, you know? And I think that's part of the magic of that Barack Obama thing thing that I, I said earlier, you know, if I'm feeling hopeless, go out and volunteer. That's a great way to leap free of yourself, you know, immerse yourself in other people's problems. So continue on the quote sheet from Master Kong, Confucius, our greatest glory is not in never failing, but in rising every time we fall. A wonderful one from Hafez, Ever since happiness heard your name, it has been running through the streets trying to find you. What would it mean to let yourself be found by happiness? The author Dumas wrote, all human wisdom is summed up in two words, wait and hope. Thoreau said, if we will be quiet and ready enough, we shall find compensation in every disappointment. There's something very deep there, you know, and can we, you know, do we attach so much to our sadness about the disappointment? Do we miss the compensation, you know? Emily Dickinson says, hope is the thing with feathers that perches on the soul and sings a tune without words and never stops at all. She also said, I dwell in possibility. I think another way to say that is, I dwell in wonder. Edison said quite practically, 
Many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. Mahatma Gandhi says, you must not lose faith in humanity. Humanity is an ocean. If a few drops of the ocean are dirty, the ocean does not become dirty. Of course, if there are megatons of plastic in the ocean, that's another story, but still we can be hopeful. G.K. Chesterton said, Hope means hoping when things are hopeless, or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. Churchill said, The pessimist sees difficulty in every opportunity. The optimist sees opportunity in every difficulty. And he also said, If you're going through hell, keep going. (laughs) Dale Carnegie said, Most of the important things in the world have been accomplished by people who have kept on trying when there seemed to be no hope at all. Tolkien said quite simply, there's some good in this world and it's worth fighting for. Antoine Saint-Exupéry, who wrote The Little Prince, said, if you want to build a ship, don't herd people together and collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather... Teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Nelson Mandela said, I am fundamentally an optimist. Whether that comes from nature or nurture, I cannot say. Part of being optimistic is keeping one's head pointed to the sun, one's feet moving. Pretty powerful words from a man who spent 27 years in jail. He also said, may your choices reflect your hopes, not your fears. Maya Angelou said, you will face many defeats in your life, but never let yourself be defeated. And Frank said, I don't think of all the misery, but all the beauty that still remains. Of course, an astonishing line given her position. MLK said, we must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. George Weinberg says, hope never abandons you, you abandon it. The Dalai Lama says, I find hope in the darkest of days and focus in the brightest. I do not judge the universe. Jack Cornfield says, whatever your difficulties, a devastated heart, financial loss, feeling assaulted by conflicts around you, or a seemingly hopeless illness, You can always remember that you are free in every moment to set the compass of your heart to your highest intention. In fact, the two things you are always free to do, despite your circumstances, are to be present and to be willing to love. Something astonishingly hopeful about that. Oprah says, what you get in life is what you have the courage to ask for. Steve Jobs, in a particularly intense quote, says, Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. Barbara Kingsolver says, 
Hope is a renewable option. If you run out of it at the end of the day, you get to start over in the morning. And I'll, the Barack Obama quote I referred to, but I'll read it. The best way not to feel hopeless is to get up and do something. Don't wait for good things to happen to you. Go out and make some good things happen. You'll fill the world with hope, and you will fill yourself with hope. Rebecca Solnit says, quite simply, hope is an embrace of the unknown. David Orr says, hope is a verb with its shirt sleeve rolled up. And Shigentori Kamioka says, find the seed at the bottom of your heart and bring forth a flower.